Father in heaven, thank you for a new day. Thank you for your mercies, the, the sunshine. We see your goodness and caring for the world and for us and for giving us your word that gives us wisdom and guidance for life. As we finish this course today on work, we pray that you would continue to uh, work these truths into our hearts, help us to be growing in, in faithfulness to you in our vocations, to be good witnesses for what you have done for us, and and to care for others with the, with the love that you show for us. Help us to show that love for others as well. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 15. Our last class, uh, our course on work and vocation. You can see that down there at the bottom, our lesson title is Success and Value. We're going to be roughly covering material in this book by Gilbert and Traeger that I've been in the last few weeks. They have a a chapter at the end that they're answering a couple questions one that maybe some of you have dealt with or asked before, but is full-time ministry more valuable than my job? And also, am I called to my job? So we're going to roughly cover that, that material, um, thinking about how do we really define success and value? How do we assign value to different vocations? And is that even the right way to think about it? I also encourage you, some of you have been here for most of the class at the end, time permitting, I'm going to do a, an informal survey, just to think back to, like, if you, for the times that you've been here, like, how, what was helpful, what was, you know, what could have been improved, what could have been left out, you know, so if you look back over to where we've been, that might just be a good refresher, and also give you, you know, about 45 minutes or an hour to think ahead, so if anything comes to mind, you know, f- constructive feedback that would be helpful. So, how do we gauge the success and value of our work? Wally can help us here. He says, I've been tracking my successes at work relative to my efforts and I see no correlation. So, if you see me not working hard, you, ass- you should assume everything is fine. His boss responds, You've never had a success to track. I was hoping you didn't know that. <laughs> So, laughing aside, I think all of us, you know, there's, there's truth here in that all of us want to feel like the work that we're doing every day has, uh, is successful, has, has value, has meaning, that it, it's worth something, that we're not just wasting our time, and that it is actually valuable. So, how do we think about that as Christians? Is that a, how, do, what, how do we think about and how do we gauge the success or the value of our work. Is full-time ministry more valuable than my job is the question they ask. And you might put it other ways too. You say, what type of work is most pleasing to God? Or are certain vocations more pleasing to God than others? Now, if you've been in the class for the last 10 or 12, 14 weeks, I guess, what kind of answers would you give to that already? Some of this will be summarizing and rehashing things that we've been over before, but... Any uh, anyone awake or this early to offer a response to that biblically, as far as what type of work is most pleasing to God, Raymond? No. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one is full time ministry more valuable than my job. Raymond says no. Okay. Why do you think that? Hmm. Biblically, if not stealing anymore is as valuable to God. Hmm. In my opinion, biblically speaking, from what I read. All right, anyone want to offer a rebuttal or 
Other another opinion? Uh, I can't tell you the reference, but whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do to all for the glory of God. Right. All would mean all. Right. Sweeping the streets and cleaning the toilet and all of the above. All right. Well, we're going to get to some of the. Maybe there's a question that's in the back of some of your minds that we'll get to later in the class. But I think I would suggest that this question is not even necessarily the right question to ask. And there may be a, a mistake even in the question. Not that we want to. We don't. We, it, is, it is good to want to make our lives count for God, but trying to assess the relative value and identify and choose the, the the place where it is the most valuable will often, I think, lead us down the wrong path. And it's not that different. If you remember, um, remember the disciples um, were out, were clamoring for the place of glory, the place of honor. Luke 22, we read this, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. That's kind of like what we do when we say, oh, I'm going to find the, I'm going to make my life count the most. I'm going to be, find the, that vocation that is most pleasing to God or most valuable. Well, really, it's another packaging around that same argument of how can we be the greatest. But Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. So, we're going to look at different texts that deal with this question of what is what really is pleasing to God, and, how, and hopefully we'll come around to see more of a biblical basis for answering these questions, or reframing these questions. So to start with, if you can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, I didn't put the whole text up here because it's long, but we're going to read about the, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Matthew chapter 20, it's actually very, um, right on the heels of this, this um, parable is when the disciples come and are trying to figure out who's the greatest. In Matthew's account, it's a little different than Luke's, but in Matthew's account, they're asking who can sit at the right hand of Jesus when he comes in his kingdom. And then they're all arguing with each other about why the sons of Zebedee want to be at the right hand of Jesus and to be the greatest. And it's in this context that Jesus tells this parable. And in a sense, he's, in doing so, he's turning on, on, our, on its head how we think about what's valuable and how we can prioritize ourselves over others. So, does someone want to read for us Matthew 20, 1 through 16? Loud and clear. Johnny, go for it. 1 through 16, you said? Yep. Okay. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the days a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Each 
to them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Thanks, Johnny. So how do we assign value to the work of the different laborers? And we've got several different groups here, some that worked the whole day and some that worked only an hour. How do we assign value to their work? The amount of work they did. All right, the amount of work they did. And some did 11 times the amount of work as the others. I, I bring this up, this parable up, just to, you know, you see Jesus purposefully turning our system of values on its head in a sense. He says the last will be first and the first last. You know, it's not quite... I think we could we could draw a little bit of analogy here and think, you know, someone who's you know been a faithful servant of God in ministry for their whole lives and labored in ministry, and then someone else who's saved at the very end of their life and serves God for a short time. Um, you know, or, or serves in ways that don't appear as as glamorous, that don't appear as or maybe glamorous isn't the right word, but as as faithful or successful in, in ministry. And we see here that Jesus is not his value system isn't the same as ours, that when we look at it according to our own thinking and try to assign value, we come up with different answers than what Jesus is looking at here. Is it really the same thing he says to them a few verses later when he says, the greatest among you should be the one who serves. So it's when we try to look out and assess value and then choose vocations that are going to be most valuable based on our understanding. Um, you know, we need to be careful that we're, we're thinking biblically in the process. So, Raymond, did you want to say something? Yeah, I was just thinking about uh, it's, uh, the tales related to Spurgeon every time before he went up to the stand to preach would pray, God have mercy on me, a sinner, because he understood the magnitude of what he was stepping up to do and how un- it's not, from, it's not, it wasn't him, it wasn't from him, it was God's stuff that he was, yeah. you know, so, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why God used him so powerfully, you know, because he kept that posture of humility, and, and, and Jesus warned us, you know, when you've done everything, everything, yeah. you're not saving yourself, oh, from some kind of somebody, but say, right. I'm an unprofitable servant, I've only done what I should. Yeah. <clears throat> Jonathan, you want to add something? I was just thinking the the focus of the workers versus the landowner was very different. The workers, they wanted dollars per hour. So the guys that showed up at the beginning, you know, same day divided by 12 hours, so they got the lowest return per hour. The landowner was just interested in the vineyard getting worked to capacity. Hmm. That's what he was focused on. So he was out there hiring everybody he could get to come do all the work because the point for him wasn't dollars per hour. He, was, he wasn't even trying to get the most value out of each of the workers he just needed. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think sometimes we can, especially in our society, we're so focused on efficiency and productivity, we can go astray, I think, when we start applying that same thinking without reframing it biblically into our value as Christians or as as workers in the kingdom. So let's look at a couple of texts where 
we all, we do here. I mean, the Bible Bible does talk about what is pleasing to God. There are certain things we do that are pleasing, and other things that are not. So let's look at some of these texts that talk about what's pleasing to Him. I want to start in Colossians one. Can someone read for me these verses? I have them up on the screen. Colossians one nine through eleven. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Alright, so what do we see here? What in this text is, I mean, Paul's praying for the church at Colossae. And what, is, what are the things that he's praying for that are pleasing to the Lord? That he wants to see come to, to come to reality in the lives of the church there at Colossa. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What else? Yep, being filled with the knowledge of his will. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. Um, walking in a manner worthy. Being strengthened with all power for all endurance and patience with joy. I mean, all of that, in a sense, he's describing what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and to to walk in a way that's pleasing to Him. So, when, when you're looking at this description here, how, how does this connect to your vocations? And is are you... Are you in a better place in terms of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord if you're in ministry or if you're in a different vocation? If you're a homemaker or a plumber or um, an engineer or a pilot or any other vocation? Does being in ministry make you, in a sense, does it give you a leg up in fulfilling, in, in being, walking this life that's in a worthy of the Lord and being fully pleasing to Him? No. <laughs> well, why not? Um, because sometimes, if you're always, always only in ministry, you don't get the opportunity to be around the non-Christians. Um, and also, maybe you could be um, deceiving yourself that you are, you do have a leg up. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Oh, Trish, you want to add something? I, I'd like to play the other card. Yep. Because <laughs> I don't think I think it depends on where your heart's at. Because if you are serving out of a joy for what the Lord has done for you, uh, when I teach Sunday school to five-year-olds, the my knowledge of Christ deepens and my understanding of God deepens. And so it's not just about checking the box and taking care of somebody's kid while they're learning. Right. But there's a, there is a spiritual benefit to me, but it depends on where my heart's at when I'm serving. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think you could say the same thing about the vocation as well. That if when you're doing that vocation with that same heart um, disposition, um, it can it can be walking man in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, and the same in minute And either one can go awry. You can do your vocation for selfish reasons. You can do ministry for selfish reasons. But but what he's describing here 
you know you can do in your ordinary walks of life. Even when you think about you know what he's saying here, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. The assumption is that you're enduring some difficult circumstances. Like endurance and patience only makes sense when they're difficult things to endure. When you have to walk through things that are hard, that require you to bear up under conflict and trials and that in the midst of that which oftentimes occurs in our vocations um, we have an opportunity to actually be strengthened with his power according to his glorious might in the sense your vocation if you, this is a bit of a reframing of how to think of it but it's a it's a an arena where these truths can be fleshed out in your life where you can bear fruit in every good work. Good works, they, they can be through ministry. They are in ministry. But they are also in your workplace, in um, caring for others, in, in responding graciously to conflict. Um, you can bear fruit in good work in those you know, 40, 45 hours a week that you're in your vocation as well. Jonathan, you want to add something? Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's interesting, you know, all through the New Testament, I mean, Paul does, you know, as Paul's writing these things to the Christians, he does not, you notice, he doesn't tell them what we might think, well, if you want to be fully pleasing to him, leave your jobs and go be a minister. I mean, he does take someone like Timothy along with him, and they go along and they serve, but you never find anywhere in his letters where he's actually putting into words what we kind of think sometimes by default. Well, if I can... Once I, if I could be freed up to not have to work and go do ministry, then I would be fully pleasing to him. That's the logic that sometimes runs in our, underneath the surface of our thinking. And you, don't, you can't find a text where Paul argues that way. Here he's telling the church at Colossae to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And the assumption is that they're going to continue in their daily vocations where God has placed them. We see the, the same type of thing. So, in this question, you know, what, what is pleasing to God, you know, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing the knowledge of God, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, all of that is pleasing to God. We see some other texts where, in the New Testament where, that show us more of what, what is pleasing to God. In Hebrews 11.6, we read, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So, from there, we can turn that first clause around and say that actually faith is what is pleasing to God. That if you don't have faith, you won't please Him. The assumption there, the turning it around, is that when you walk by faith, it is actually pleasing to Him. And again, faith, like endurance, is actually it's it's like to exercise faith that requires uncertainty and and challenge and and um, you know opportunities to step out. It, with risk when you don't when you don't know how things are going to work out and i would suggest that our vocations uh, whether in the home or the workplace are opportunities for that to play out that we can actually exercise faith in the the day-to-day responsibilities that we have in our vocations first timothy 4 paul tells timothy he says train yourself for godliness for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So, again, we are seeing that there are things that are of value to God, that are more value than others, that are pleasing to God. But here we're seeing it's godliness. So, godly character is valuable. It, it has, it's, um, the word there is like, it, it's useful, it's um, 
it's profitable, it's, it's good for, it's not only pleasing to God, but it's actually good for you to have godly character. And it has value not only for the present life, but also for the life to come, which is hard to wrap your mind around, but there's some way that the character that God is working in us now, in the midst of the trials and the, the struggles of this life, will actually bear fruit in the life to come. There will be rewards in the life to come. So, we're going to... Let me look at a few more texts, and then I, I want to come back around and, and maybe hit this question a little more directly from the other side, maybe the side that Trish was coming from. But um, this is a text, I want to look at 1 Thessalonians. We, I, this is a text that I started the whole class with, so some if you were here the first week, you probably remember this. But uh, look at the the things that Paul connects here. You know, if you read through the letters of Thessalonians, um, all through them, you see talk of the second coming. They were they were thinking a lot about the second coming. They were they were struggling with with afflictions and trials, being persecuted, and so the second coming was something they were longing for, something that they were excited about when Jesus would come back. And in first in second Thessalonians, it's all about he's going to punish the evildoers, and you know those people that are afflicting you, they're they're going to get their comeuppance someday. But in the midst of all that, they were tempted to think, well. Since Jesus is coming back soon, it, it does, do I really have to go do my job? Like, why, why, do, why do I need to clean the uh, latrines or um, take care of my financial affairs or plan for the future if Jesus is just going to come back and He might come back tomorrow? I mean, then it's all going to—it's all worthless. Uh, you know, that was their their thinking. And Paul, on the one hand, he affirms. As you see over here, you know, these verses are ones we will often read at funerals or, you know, you think about grief, starting in verse 13, 13 through 18, Paul's affirming that it's right for them to believe that Jesus will come back and he could come back at any moment. You know, in verse 16, what I have underlined over there, he says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. But, so that's true, that's a reality. It's right around the corner. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. But Paul doesn't say, therefore, quit your jobs and go serve in ministry. Become missionaries and pastors, everyone, and go spend all your time doing church work. For some, he does. I mean, like I said, he takes people along with him. So it's not that that's wrong to do that, but it's not, necess- it's not required of everyone to do that because you see what he urges the brothers to do in the part that I have in bold there. He says, starting in verse 10, We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, that is, to show brotherly love more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So, Jesus is coming back soon, so work with your hands. Do your Mind your own affairs. Don't become idle. Don't shirk your daily responsibilities. Instead, lean into those and do those well, walking properly before outsiders and being dependent on no one. Does that logic make sense? Uh, do you see how we can... Does anyone see the, 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 the flip side of that or to think that if Jesus is coming back, then my work doesn't really matter? And do you see how, for Paul, that, that logic is not, does not connect the way that we sometimes 
think it does? Or does anyone want to push back on this and think that I'm misunderstanding? Caleb? I don't think you're misunderstanding. <laughs> All right. I was just thinking, as I was reading it, that I might have, in the past, interpreted that wrong when it says, and aspire live quietly to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. I guess I just assumed that that meant within your roles, like in your families, yes, and then in the church, as you've been instructed by the elders, by the teachers, on how you've been instructed to do your role, I thought it meant like in your families and in your in your role in the church as the body of Christ. I didn't realize, I didn't think about that in the way, like my own affairs, like occupation-wise. I don't know how. Yeah. I didn't see it like that. I guess. Well, and if you in Second Thessalonians. So this is First Thessalonians. And Second Thessalonians, Paul wrote back to them and was dealing with some of the same things. And at that time, actually, some people had disobeyed this command because he tells them in, um, in Second Thessalonians 3.6, he commands them to keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So the tradition that you see from us is also you know, as we instructed you. Um, and then he goes on and explains actually how he set them an example in verses Second Thessalonians 3, 7 and 8. Uh, he says, You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So, you know, Paul, for Paul that wasn't economic. He, he's thinking economically here. He, he was working he set them an example of working hard to provide for his own needs, even though, as he went on to say, he had a right in ministry that he could have, he could have uh, expected them to, to compensate him as, a, as their pastor, in a sense, even though he was just there for a short time. But, so he wanted to set them an example so that they wouldn't aspire to this life that didn't, of, with, of not working hard um, and being idle. So, Johnny? I was just thinking if, if they thought this way with Thessalonians and they've been dead for what, almost 2,000 years and all the more reason for us not to think that Christ is going to return. Maybe I should work as hard or do whatever. Right. Who knows? We don't know. All the more reason to work hard. Right. And it's not as though Christ isn't going to return. We needed it is there is an imminence, like he, you know, because he, he could return tomorrow. And then, in one sense, yes, your job, you know, whatever you know, pro- projects I designed, the world's going to be destroyed, and you know, they're not going to last, so to speak. But to to reason from that that it doesn't matter, and that I can be idle in it, is contrary to Paul's thinking, and contrary to God's thinking, as God's the one who inspired Paul. Thinking about that, so the second coming, I want to see, show you also how Peter kind of argues the same way, or we can see a similar thinking in Peter in Second Peter three. And I'm going to turn over from Second Peter. You could, if you want to turn there, because we'll look also at chapter one. You know, it's, it's interesting. Even in the first century, people were beginning to wonder: Is Jesus really going to come back? Like. You know, he, when he was here, he talked often as though he would come back very soon. Like if you read the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, there was an expectation of the imminence of Christ's return. And so now, I don't know, I don't remember when Second Peter was written, but late, later in the first century, people are beginning to wonder, is Jesus really going to come back? Uh, and if you read at this, 
the beginning of Second Peter chapter 3. I don't have those verses on the screen. But that's really what he's responding to because he's saying there's scoffers who are saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. So things are just going on like normal. You know, where is the promise of his coming? I thought he was coming back. Maybe he's not really coming back. And then Peter goes on and explains to them, well, first he gives them the example of the flood. to say, okay, everything was normal for a while, and then God destroyed the world with a flood. So he did it once before. He can do it again. And then he tells them this. He says in 2 Peter 3.8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, anytime, it, when eschatology becomes an academic pursuit, just about, you know, trying to figure out who that person is and how they fit into the end times events and, you know, which superpowers are rising. When it, when it becomes that, where's the mark of the beast? You know, when it becomes an academic pursuit, we're really missing the biblical the thrust of the of what eschatology is meant to be in the Bible. You see, for for Peter, this is eschatology right here. The days of the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavenly bodies will be burned up. There's a final day of judgment are coming is coming. And then look at, at the turn in verse eleven. Because of this, since since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? You know, it's an ethical Argument: you, you are to live a certain way because the end is coming. And the way that he's, you know, he's, he's saying that you ought to live holy and godly lives because the end is coming. So it matters how you live in this world. And here it's not economic like in, in 1 Thessalonians, but the, um, what, he's, what he's exhorting them to live lives of holiness and godliness, I'd suggest to you it plays out in your vocations just as much as it does anywhere else. I mean, it does, it's true, it plays out in the home, it plays out in the church, but it also plays out in your vocations. Um, on that day, when these things are to be dissolved, we will enter into this, the new heavens and the new earth. And if you turn over to chapter 1, you'll see that there are going to be some at that day who will, in Second Peter 1.11, we're told, who will be provided with a rich entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1.11 For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, if we're thinking about success and value, I mean, this is true success, true value, to have a rich entrance into the eternal kingdom kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I didn't put all the verses up there, but you know, look look at Second Peter one. What's who are those who are provided with a rich entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior? Verse ten gives you the first step. Who are diligent to confirm their calling. Those who are diligent to confirm their calling. That's right. And 
those who specifically, he says, practice these qualities. You know, he doesn't say, if you have a successful ministry, if you're a pastor, then you will have a rich entrance into the eternal kingdom. Many pastors will, obviously. I'm not saying pastors won't have that, but it's not limited to those who are in official church ministry. It's those who practice these qualities. So what are these qualities? You can go back to verse 5, 5 through 7. He gives you a list of qualities. Someone want to... You guys see those? Yep. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, faith, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. For these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, I just want to point out that these qualities are things that you do exercise in the church and you exercise them in your home, but they're also exercised in your vocation. You know, I, I don't know your work experience. I, can, I know mine, and I've talked to many of you, but I know there are many circumstances where if you will walk virtuously, then you will be a light. You will be different than those who are cutting corners, those who are really just trying to make the most money, or those who are really just looking out for their own interests. You know, there's, it's very common in the workplace for people to look out for their own interests at the expense of their employees, at the expense of their employer, you know, the, the boss, the man, you know, stick it to the man, um, you know, you're, you're there just to get yours, get work for the weekend. That's very common in the workplace. So these qualities can be put on display in your vocations. And uh, for Paul, for Peter, you know, if you're growing in these qualities, then that is what will ensure that you provide, a, that you're provided with a rich entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Summarizing then, in w- these texts that we've seen, what is pleasing to God? We're thinking about how to you know, be, walk in a way that's most successful, most valuable, maximize the value of our lives, you know, be most pleasing to God. What have we seen is, uh, is pleasing to God? We've seen bearing fruit and good works, endurance and patience with joy, godliness, faith, working with your hands, and then that list of things we just saw, faith, virtue, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, affection, love, etc. All right. Now, what about this, though? Some of you, you know, I know I've all, I've thought this way. How do we respond to this? You know, we all know the world's not going to last. It's people that will really last. And those who are in ministry really get to invest in people. You know, I'm stuck writing computer code. I just picked that in as, as an example. You could fill in the blank with what you feel like you're stuck doing. You know, I'm, I'm doing that for 40 hours a week, and it's going to get upgraded in five years anyways. So, you know, wh- how can it really be that ministry, that, that my job is, is not less valuable than ministry? Someone who gets to be in ministry gets to invest in people as, as their job. Right. I'd say in your vocation, you're granted certain opportunities that even a pastor would not have um, to individuals that they would not interact with a pastor. So you're granted the ability to be a light in that way. Yeah. Steve? Um, I was going to say it's not just your vocation. 
the litigation provides a need for you to survive to be the best thing for people in the Whether that's at the grocery store or gas. Like, I go to the same gas station every day. Or wherever I go. But I go to Holiday Market. Yeah. You know, so I have relationships with these people there. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different answers. I mean, there's different ways to address it. Anyone else want to add? Yeah, I, I would say too. There's a lot of a lot of jobs where you never interact with people. You might work from home. Right. You might. You might. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you check in uh, oil rigs or whatever. You know, you never see anyone. So I don't necessarily think it's about how you invest in people like your work either. I think it's about a lot of it has to do with your diligence and your discipline. And, you're doing the things that you can do at work that are going to be pleasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a couple of different strands that we can all that are going to apply differently in different vocations. I mean, it is true that for many, like as both Jonathan and Quinn said, that for many of you, you probably, I think myself included, I don't know, you know, Jeremy's social life as much. I mean, I have a, an a inkling of it, but I would suggest that many of us have more contact with unbelievers on a daily basis than Jeremy does or anyone who's in full-time vocational ministries, working diligently within the church, and that's great, and that's good, and may have some relationships with unbelievers, but, you know, I probably a dozen or more interactions with unbelievers every day. So, in a sense, you know, many of you are in a, have a unique opportunity, like Jonathan said, people that aren't going to set foot in a church are going to see you in, in your workplace. And that does require you sometimes to, you know, step over that, that dividing line, that invisible line that um, says, this is work, you can't talk about your faith. I mean, there's times when you have to be that guy or gal to step over that line and start those conversations, you know, as we talked last week. But there's other answers we could say, too. You know, we, we saw a couple other verses early on in the, that I would just, again, commend to you to remember in light of these questions. You know, in Colossians 3, and this goes to kind of what Johnny was saying, you know, Paul's exhortation to the bondservants was that in the midst of serving their masters, they were serving the Lord. That even if they're working on an oil rig and they're not getting to invest in people, they don't feel like their work is meaningful in that sense. That if they do their work heartily, and this goes back to what Trish was saying, as for the Lord and not for men. And, you know, if, you're, if your heart disposition is to do your work for the Lord, whatever you do, then you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And you can serve the Lord Christ in caring for the oil rigs or the, you know, planting the forests, or even if it's isolated work. This isn't to say that, you know, you are always called to do the same work for your whole your whole career, your whole life, there may be opportunities when you can you have an opportunity to take a new role that will give you new opportunities to to serve or maybe you think better is a better fit for your gifting and and that's okay and that you can serve the Lord Christ faithfully in one vocation and then as God opens opportunities, you can serve him in a different vocation at a different time, which we see in in first Corinthians just um, you know what what Paul had said to the church there, you know, exhorting them to lead the life that the Lord had assigned to them, to which God had called them. And whatever conditions, 1 Corinthians 7.24, and whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So in one sense, yes, serve the Lord with contentment and wherever God has placed you, but 
you know, recognizing, as you saw in verse 21, we, I know we've talked about this before, but if you have the opportunity to change your, your vocation, and the, the Lord opens the, the door, you have the desire to do it, you have a gifting to do it, it may be that God leads you in a, in a season of life to enter a different vocation. That's a, let me just wrap up with a, some concluding points of application, and then I'm going to pass these papers out in a second. This hopefully that's been helpful. Maybe I know it, it can be difficult at times. And Paul, you want to add something? I was thinking um, a few chapters later, and talks about us. Paul talks about us being the body of Christ and how you can't say the I don't need you or the or the belly button, whatever. So I think right. it's helpful to, to see your, yourself. You're connected to the body of Christ. So if you are writing code. I don't know what body part that is. Maybe it's a big toe. Maybe it's a brain. I don't know. Right. But you are, you're not alone. You're not a part of the body of Christ. Yeah. Christ is put you where you are to be. And to be godly there. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. And I actually had this slide, but I skipped over it. But 1 Corinthians, I think it's 12, and Romans 12 same argument Paul makes and I think he's speaking of the church but it applies in a broader sense to society as a whole as well that you know that we're all God has organized human society to function with different roles and responsibilities and the tendency is to you know jostle to find that responsibility that's the greatest that's what we all want to you know be have that acclaim and prestige but um, again and again Paul's reminding them you're just members of the body not all the bodies, not, not all the members have the same function and serve according to the gifting, the vocation, the opportunity that God, that God gives you. Thanks, Paul. So, a few points of application. Instead of seeing our vocation as a hindrance to doing meaningful work, God would have us see the ways that He's using our vocation to shape our characters and grow faith and godliness in us while also using us to care for the needs of Instead of seeing our vocation as a hindrance to ministering to others, God would have us see the people that He has placed in our paths in our vocation as an opportunity to share the gospel and display the love of Christ. And since we are are called to our vocations by God, we make it our aim to please Him and serve Him with contentment and joy, even when we aren't passionate about our daily work. All right, well, we're going to have Mr. Kalkin, Paul, come on up. As you come up, Paul... I'm going to pass out these. Um, we're going to go through our discussion with Paul, and maybe as he's talking or after he's done, I'm going to ask you uh, a few questions about the class. So, all right, um, Mr. Kalkinen, what kind of work do you do? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a teacher and a coach. How did you enter into this vocation? Like, how did, how did you choose that? Or how did it choose you? Um, I guess uh, in the past I, I, I grew up uh, uh, here in the community. I went to a Christian school here and um, saw how some of the teachers cared about me, for their for their hearts into me, and encouraged me and motivated me. And so I wanted to, to do the same thing for others. Where do you teach? Uh, I'm at University Prep. All right. What do you coach? Um, basketball, uh, strength training. All right. How does your work reflect God's good design from creation? 
Well, I guess uh, I'm an English teacher, and so uh, throughout the course of the class, I'm teaching them about God's great themes that he has put into this world. And so uh, the great literature that and that I try to teach my kids, uh, I think the, the literature that stands, the stuff that's classic, is the stuff that's closely, most closely aligned to the truths of God's scripture. And so while it doesn't capture it perfectly, uh, the great authors capture the human condition and God's themes of, of sin, uh, of redemption, mm-hmm. guilt, loss, love, um, innocence, hatred, violence, like all those things, when they're captured um, in the written word, um, and then when they're presented as the truth, of, well, not, not the truth of Scripture, but they align with the truth of Scripture, those are the kinds of things that I draw out mm-hmm. of the kids. So um, I'm always trying to point kids towards seeing God's truths. Uh, this this yeah. last week, I keep asking, the, well, we're talking about life and the value of life. I'm encouraging the kids to think about what happens to them when they die. Uh, encouraging, you know, that's, you know, tell a 17-year-old kid, when you die, where are you going to go? And, um, and then the theme of the play that we're, we're going through Hamlet right now, uh, one of the main themes of the play is that there's a special fall on earth, there's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. Um, and that um, there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will. And so um, the argument there is that God shapes and purpose or shapes the edges of our lives, and then we come and we rough hew them, we, we trim them to our fashion. And so that's my argument to the kids. And, that's what that's the answer. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember. Well, was, I think I, we talked about this earlier in the course, but I think it was Abraham Kuyper that said, "All truth is God's truth," whether it's I guess in Hamlet or other, you know, fi- even fiction, right? Can can be true in that sense, right? Yeah, and what the literature does, and what I try to do in the class is I try to hold a mirror to the kids so that they can see themselves in the story. And so in this person who needs redemption and this person who is hopeless, there's you're pointing towards there's a hope, there's a there's mm-hmm. a, there's a reckoning, there's a there's a judgment, there's mm-hmm. there's things that are, are of eternal value and significance. And so that's what I'm always pointing the kids towards. Mm-hmm. Well, how does the fall impact work in your field? There's a whole bunch of um, other ways of viewing literature where when you look at literature, you can look at it and say, you know what, um, you can say there are eternal truths that are true for everyone at all times. But then there's also other lenses where you can say, well, what's true for you is not true for you, and you have your own truth, and like, how can, and how can I even judge you because you got your own thing? So, um, so when they're in the classroom, like you got these simple kids um, trying to do their simple things, and... Um, there's all these other ideologies, all these other uh, forms of criticism that can um, that you can walk the kids down and so you have all these different theories. That, um, so I'm trying to always kind of like point them back towards truth, uh, point them towards Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's just the, the classwork. And then, then you have all these broken kids. Um, and so like part of the part of the work that I do is not I mean it's like teacher but also kind of social worker too where like you like there are the kids in the in throughout the course of the day that like resonate with you and so uh, they, they they're drawn to you for whatever reason so they're lacking something and you fulfill that for them and so throughout the course of the day they gravitate to different teachers just like probably some of you had teachers that you're like eh, I can't stand this person or you're like oh, this person I, I fell along with. I don't like the subject I like the person and so um, during the course of uh 
the week, the day. I've got all these other conversations that aren't really about school. When someone's grandma dies and they have to come to me and tell me that they're going to miss school, and so then there's a conversation there. So there's like the school work, and then there's like the people work as well. So there's yeah, lots of lots of brokenness, lots of lots of hard yeah. things to go through. Yeah, I'm sure. What about even just in your own teaching? Like, are there any days that what you try to accomplish is frustrated and instead of you know producing knowledge and understanding among your students there are thorns and thistles that come up in, in this uh, place or? I give them a book and they pretend to read it so, <laughs> I'm not under the illusion that all of my kids are reading all of the things that I assign in fact that's what spark notes are for right that's, and that's, that's why I tell them I say hey you check your spark notes but you don't give that to me because the t- I write. I try to write things that like you can't spark note, and so uh, that is. So I had a conversation with a teacher the other day, and she was getting summaries from a chapter because she was reading the non-abridged version, and the the spark notes is from the abridged version, and so all the chapters were off, and so she like called a bunch of kids out. And they're like, like, yeah, I didn't read it. I just spark noted it, and so uh, spark notes can only get you so far. Is spark notes a verb now? Uh, yeah, it's not. They don't do spark notes anymore. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's. I mean, it's. It's always. There's always people trying to get around the hard work, and so um, yeah. I tell them that my job is to make them smarter than their phones. And now, with like the new like the the chat stuff, like they have to be really smart if they're going to get some get a good job. Otherwise, you're going to they're going to it's not going to go well for them. So try to prepare them to do something that their phone can't do, which is. Hopefully, think and feel. <laughs> yeah. Well, how does the gospel reshape your perspective on work in your field? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm teaching students, but they're also people, and they're all they're, their biggest need is Jesus. And so, yeah. at some point, I could try to get to you. You build a relationship. You try to get them to respect you. Try to um, show them that you care about them, and then and then hopefully there's an opportunity at some point to to share the gospel with them. Um, over the course of the year, I know it's there. There are times where there there are moments where you you have opportunities where it's like um, there's a loss or there's some kind of moment throughout the course of the year, and so you're always kind of looking for those opportunities, praying for those opportunities, um, trying to as best you can try to get to those opportunities if you can. Um, and so it's yeah, it's it's all about a relationship with people. So. I know that I have so many days to try to get through material, but they, but really, like, the material is secondary. It's like trying to, to help the hurting kid, you know, point them to, to what, what, would, what the cure is. Hmm. How do you deal with, I mean, I'm assuming at a non-Christian school, I mean, there's some expectation that you're not allowed to evangelize the class, or I mean, how, how do you, do you feel that pressure at times, or how do you deal with that? I mean, if you're having, you're not going to have a, Conversation like this. Well, I mean, it gets to religion. It gets to all kinds of matters of eternity. Like, like we were talking about, you know, like God, divinity shapes your ends. Like you, you have a, God's shaping your life, and you have, you can like um, sand out the rough edges. But the general form of your life is shaped by God, and then you can like make little changes. Is, is what Shakespeare's offering. And so that's a big conversation that you have. But then there are other little conversations where a kid comes to you and it's like you and the kid saying, yes, kids are out there doing something else. And then there's a one-on-one conversation. So those are the ones where those one-on-one conversations, is that's when you would 
really share the gospel anyway with somebody, mm-hmm. you know, like across your office, right? All right, listen, everyone in the office, I just want to tell you, it's like a one-on-one conversation after a hard thing, right. when you're going through things, when you build trust, when you're having a conversation with a, with a person like that. So they, it would come with a one-on-one, and those those conversations are very, like, there's so many different things that I've gotten to, I'm like, I never, never thought I'd talk about that with a kid, and then yet it come kid brings it up, and hmm. it's a good time. So there's there's quite a bit of freedom, even though there's there's expectations and whatnot, but there's there's still quite a bit of freedom. Hmm. Any other any questions for Paul? I'm I'm curious if you weren't an English teacher, like if you take a, take what you said, I mean, how did you, how would you apply that if you're teaching economics or like computer science or PE? The, the I mean, it's still all about relationships. Like when you get down mm-hmm. to teaching, it's about relationships. And if you have a good relationship with the kid, they'll do quite a bit for you. Like if the kid hates you, like it's it's not it's not going to go well if they don't want to do the work, right? But if if they like you, if they respect you, they're going to do quite a bit for you. And you can get kids to do some pretty interesting things if they respect you and if they like you. So it doesn't matter um, literature or, or the other mm-hmm. disciplines. I think literature is easiest because you're not teaching you're not teaching content, you're teaching skills. And so in math, like they have to learn like how to do this this type of equation. They have to learn this formula, they have to learn how to do these specific things. History, they have to learn these specific facts. But in in English, like you're developing your skill as a writer. That's a skill. You're developing your skill at critical thinking. That's a skill. Those, are, those are, are measured by like, well, now I know X. It's like, how well can you do this? And so there's, it's more of a continuum of like, you're just trying to push kids along the continuum. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily like, well, we, we can check this off because now they know the main causes of World War I. Yeah. So it's a little bit different. It's more, I can, I can choose the things um, that I want to go through. And, right. And, Great. Any other questions or comments? All right. Thanks, Paul. I'll close in prayer and close the course. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You so much for Your grace in our lives. We thank You that Your Word gives us guidance and wisdom for how to to live in the world that You made, how to serve You in our vocations, and I pray that you would help us as followers of Jesus to be faithful in, in following Him, in, in loving others, in, in having hearts of worship that are doing our work as unto you to bring glory to your name. I pray that you'd help make us more faithful in that and help us to be shining lights in our workplaces, to take the opportunities we have to show love for others and to share the gospel with them and to, to trust you and to be content even when our work is difficult, when it doesn't seem to align perfectly with our hopes and dreams, but to trust that you are doing your good work in and through us, even in the struggles. And pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.